Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to be able to add to Simon's welcome. And if you have a Bible, please do open with me to the book of Galatians. Uh, You'll find it helpful to have that open in front of you as we work down through it and introduce it this morning. I'm going to start by putting this um, quotation up on the screen um, from my old New Testament professor, uh, Dr. Don Carson. The greatest danger facing evangelical Christianity today is not an outright denial of the gospel, but rather the sloppy assumption of it. Now, you've heard me use those words before and quote them. This is uh, a quote that I come back to and a truth that I come back to time and time again. It is so easy for us as Christians in a place like Northern Ireland, to just assume that we all know the gospel. The gospel, it's the message that emphasizes the problem of sin, the reality of God's judgment, and the good news that Jesus died on the cross to save us from that awful reality of judgment. With that on the screen there, I just want to ask you though, is that the gospel? Is that the whole gospel? If you were to look at that now, I was to ask you the question, what's wrong or what's missing from this definition of the gospel, I wonder what you'd say. What is missing from that definition of the gospel? Well, it's this. It emphasizes the dealing with our sin problem part of the gospel, but that definition on the screen says absolutely nothing about how the gospel might have an impact on our lives now. That definition on the screen is true, but if you were to say it's a definition of the gospel, I would say, no, 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 it's much too narrow. Or we could say it's incomplete. You see, the New Testament speaks of the gospel as a message by which we are saved, yes, but the gospel in the New Testament is also a message that profoundly shapes how we live today. The gospel says something, and the gospel does something. The gospel is the good news announcement. That's what the word gospel means, good news announcement. It's the good news announcement of salvation through Jesus' death and resurrection. We call this gospel doctrine, the truths of the gospel. But the gospel also does something. It creates beauty in human relationships by transforming and shaping our lives. We could call this gospel-shaped living. We are called to preach the gospel as a church, and we are also called to embody the gospel in our lives. This is what it means to be an orthodox, gospel-centered church. If we fail to emphasize this lived-out dimension of the gospel, we will end up with churches 
that are orthodox in doctrine, but pretty graceless in their church culture. And that kind of imbalance has blighted the church's witness here in Northern Ireland for far too long. Churches that can tick all the boxes, theologically speaking, but their church culture is harsh, legalistic, full of religion and judgmentalism. Now, why do I start our series in Galatians in this way? Well, I start this way because I wanted to highlight, just in that little run-through of what the gospel actually is, how we can assume that we have the gospel down, yet we may not have fully understood it as we should. In some ways, the term gospel is a lot like the term trinity. It's a term we use a lot as Christians. We assume that it's true, but we rarely stop to examine the foundations to make sure that we're all on the same page when we say or speak of the gospel. You see, the gospel is something we must never make assumptions about. It's far too important for that. And as we come to the book of Galatians, a book that is centered on the gospel, I hope over the next number of weeks we're going to see why getting this gospel right is so important. Here's just a few initial reasons for why getting the gospel right is absolutely important. One, the proclamation and preservation of the gospel onto the goal of making disciples is the mission of the church. Jesus told us to go into all the world, to preach the gospel to all creation, calling them to find forgiveness and new life in him. This is the mission of the church. This is what sets the church apart from every other group, not just in this city, but in the world. Any other group in this city can do social action, as important as social action is. Any other group in the city can feed the poor, can care for the homeless, can do all of that stuff that's really good, really important, really good for us as a church to be involved in. Non-Christians can do all that work. Any other group can do all of that, but what do we do that no one else in the city does? We preach the gospel. This is the mission of the church. So it's really important, if this is our central foundation and mission, that we get the gospel right. We don't want to be living or proclaiming an incomplete gospel, a ticket to heaven, out of hell gospel. We don't want to be proclaiming an incomplete gospel. Second reason we must get the gospel right then is because the gospel is about eternal heaven and hell realities. These are the most serious subjects in the universe. It is too serious to just assume the gospel or to have a superficial acquaintance with it. Here at Great Vic, we do not want to be a people with a superficial acquaintance with the gospel or people with a sloppy understanding of the gospel that is imbalanced and incomplete. Rather, we want to be a people with a deep, full, rich, well-rounded, biblical understanding of the whole gospel. And so now enter the book of Galatians. This is a letter all about the gospel, what it is and what it is not. This letter 
will emphasize continually that the gospel is a message by which we are saved and a message by which we live. It is a letter that will help us examine our foundations to make sure that we are understanding the gospel rightly, living the gospel rightly, proclaiming the gospel rightly. It is a letter that calls us not just to know the gospel in our heads, as in to have mental assent understanding, but it's a, it's, it's a letter that calls us to live in the goodness of all the grace and peace and freedom that Jesus Christ brings. And at the center of this beautiful gospel-focused letter in chapter 2, verse 20, you get this just centerpiece gem of gospel beauty where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What he's saying there essentially is, look, my old sinful nature has just been crucified and put off in Jesus Christ. There's a part of my old self that's dead with Christ. But now there's a new life. And he goes on to say, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The gospel has saved me and the gospel has transformed my life. And I'm so excited because all goes according to plan, God willing, we're going to land in Galatians 2.20 on Easter Sunday morning. And I'm so excited about that because it really is the center of what Easter is all about. So as we get into this letter, here's what I want you to be praying and asking the Lord to do through these studies over the next number of Sunday mornings that'll take us right up to the summer. Be praying, Lord, Please give me a deeper understanding of and appreciation of the gospel through this series. Please bring gospel transformation to my life as we study through this gospel-centered book. And this morning then, what I want to do is just a brief introduction and overview of the book by looking at Paul's introduction to the letter in the first five verses. Paul's introduction contains some of the main themes of the letter in seed form. And to get at this, what we're going to do is just ask three introductory questions of this introduction. A who question, a why question, and a what question. The who, why, and what of the book of Galatians. Let's get straight into it. The who question. Who was the sender and who were the recipients? Well, letters from this location in the first century had a fairly typical form. The ancient letter writing form in the Middle East at this time actually reflects what we do today in emails. Starts with a from line. Who's it from? And that's what you get in verse 1. Paul, an apostle. Now the word apostle, in the way Paul is using it here, is a term in the New Testament that refers to the official, foundational spokesman for Jesus Christ. 
It is usually used to refer to Jesus' initial group of 12 disciples, men who were chosen, called, and commissioned directly by Jesus himself to teach on his behalf. Now, the Apostle Paul was not among the initial 12, but the risen Christ later appeared to him on the road to Damascus. We can read about this in Acts chapter 9, where Jesus appears to Paul and sets him apart as an apostle to officially teach and proclaim the gospel. Paul then, in his introduction, emphasizes where his apostolic authority comes from in his from line. Look down at verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from man, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Now, Paul emphasizes where his authority as an apostle comes from here, because as we're going to see, he had certain opponents in the Galatian churches who were undermining his authority, saying that his message was not in line with the message of the original 12 apostles. And so you can see there this interesting little piece of his introduction where he just gets in there. My apostolic authority doesn't come from man. It's not man-made. It is through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. Then Paul adds a greeting from the others who are with him, the brothers with me at the time of writing. And then at the end of verse 2, we get whom the letter is addressed to. So you move from your email from from Paul to the churches of Galatia at gmail.com. Now, churches of Galatia, where is Galatia? Where was Galatia, perhaps we should say? Well, here's a map that might help you get your bearings a little bit. In Acts chapter 13, we read of Paul's first missionary journey where he traveled. Now, let's just get our bearings actually here. Uh, what a, I can't see without my glasses, but you've got Jerusalem down here, modern-day Israel going up into Lebanon, going up into Syria, and into Turkey. Paul, on his first missionary journey, went originally to Cyprus, then to, uh, what was it called, Perga in Pamphylia, then to Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Now, if I'm pointing at the wrong things, forgive me, but that's just from memory. <laughs> so, what you're in, this is modern-day Turkey. This is central Turkey. This whole green area was a large Roman province called Galatia. And after going to Cyprus... And then arriving here in Pergam Pamphylia, Paul went to Pisidian Antioch. And do you remember, he preached there in the synagogue and uh, testified that Jesus was the Christ. And they went to Iconium, Lystra, Derby, planted churches. They went back through them, establishing elders before going back home to Antioch to report on his missionary journey. Often when Paul planted a church, so churches were planted in all those Galatian, southern Galatian cities, Often when Paul would plant a church, he would establish elders, and then he would move on to plant other churches. But he would often follow up his planting work by writing letters to those churches that he had established. 
Through these letters, he helped to supervise and instruct the new churches. We have several examples of such letters in the New Testament. First and Second Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, First and Second Thessalonians. Paul writes letters to the churches to help continue to establish them and root them in gospel truth. And I just want to step back for a moment, because one of the things we're going to see over and over again in this letter is how much the Apostle Paul cared for the health of Christ's church. Paul was absolutely committed to the health of the local church. He gave himself to strengthen and support local churches that were preaching the gospel. And I just want to say at the outset, this is an area we should all be seeking to grow in. Perhaps a good prayer for us at this point would be, Lord, help me to really care about the health and well-being of your church. Not just the church here at Great Vic, but churches across this city, churches right across this island, churches across the world. Let's really be a people who care about the health, the doctrinal purity, and the embodied gospel that is lived out in local churches. We want to be local church people. So that is essentially the who question. Paul is the author of this letter, and the recipients are the Galatians, little fledgling churches that had been planted and that needed to be further established in gospel doctrine. But now we move on to the why question. Why was he writing to the Galatians specifically on this occasion? Well, it becomes pretty clear when you read through the letter as a whole that there is a serious problem afoot in the Galatian churches. There's many ways we could talk about this, but let me summarize it. The Galatians' problem consists of the following, consisted of the following three elements. First, the Galatians were flirting with another gospel that the Apostle Paul just calls no gospel at all in verse 7. Look down at a few samples of what we find in the letter that shows this Galatian problem. Verse 6. In Paul of, instead of Paul's customary thanksgiving, he begins, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, straight away, you're like, whoa, something's clearly wrong here. Then go to chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He clearly sees something's happened. There's a big problem. Chapter 3, verse 3, Paul speaks of the Galatians beginning well, but now of losing their way. In chapter 4, verse 9, if you look down there, he asks them, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless principles of the world? 
So if you just read through that letter and you look just on a cursory reading, you, you, you get the sense something's deeply wrong here. Paul hears word, he's heard that the Galatians are falling away from their faith in Jesus Christ. And to rescue them from this shipwreck, he writes this letter like a father writing to his children out of deep concern for them. In fact, one of the characteristics of this letter is we see Paul at his most passionate. He is like a father who sees his children about to run out onto a busy and dangerous road, and it's like he's shouting, Stop! Come back! And you might look at it and go, Whoa, whoa, calm down. Why are you getting so intense? Well, if it was your kids running out onto the road and about to get smacked by something, you would be pretty intense. That's how Paul feels. In fact, look at chapter 4, verse 19. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was walking along the Strand Beach in Port Stewart, and like a bolt out of the blue, that verse just came into my mind. And I just thought, wow. Paul just says, it's like I'm in... I'm in the pain of childbirth and I just want to see Christ born in you. That's how he felt about this local church and about local Christians. He's just desperate to see them established in the gospel and not turn away and make shipwreck of their faith. It's a beautiful example to any elder or pastor what we want to be praying that God would cultivate in our hearts. So here's the first part of this Galatian problem. They're flirting with another gospel, and that's too weak a word. They're turning aside to another gospel that is ultimately no gospel at all. Second part of this problem we could say is that this false gospel was being propagated by false teachers who had infiltrated the Galatian churches. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. There are some who trouble you, and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Then jump over to chapter 5, verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who called you. Then in chapter 5, 10 to 12, Paul starts speaking of the one troubling you and those who are unsettling you. So there's a problem that there's a false gospel that is turning the Galatians astray. There are proponents of this false gospel who are propagating it and pushing it forward. And Paul's saying, look, these people who are troubling you, don't listen to them. In fact, some of the language that Paul uses in this letter is extreme in the intense. And we'll see that as we work through the letter. The third sort of angle that we think about this problem in the Galatian churches is that these false teachers were insisting that to be a true Christian, you had to add religious works to the work of Christ. They were putting forward a Christ plus religious devotion version of salvation. 
Now, we'll get into this more as we progress through the letter, but it seems that there was a group of Jewish Christians in Galatia. They were saying that to be a true Christian, to be truly saved, you had to become more culturally Jewish like them. That is, adopt certain Jewish religious laws, customs, and traditions. In Acts 15.1, we get a glimpse of what this group was saying. Unless one is circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, this might seem like foreign to us. If you're not circumcised, you can't be saved. Well, no one's saying that in Belfast. It might seem a bit removed to us, but it wasn't removed for them then in the first century. In the context that this letter was originally written, this makes absolute sense. You see, Jewish people who converted to Christianity had spent their lives living in the Old Testament, living according to the Old Testament laws of Moses. They had always practiced male circumcision as God commanded to Abraham. You and all your male offspring should be circumcised. It is like a a mark in every family that sets you apart as the people of God. And so for Jewish converts, the idea of someone becoming one of God's people without having the mark of circumcision, it was almost unthinkable. And so for loads of non-Jewish people to be getting converted, and what they're just called the people of God without being circumcised, rubbish! You have to be circumcised. God said it to Abraham, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. Like, this is what you have to do to be a true child of God. And we'll see in chapter 3, Paul takes a whole chapter picking up that argument about what it truly means to be a child of God and to truly be a descendant of Abraham. You come into Christ, the true seed of Abraham. And again, I just can't wait to get there. For Paul, this gospel that the false teachers were putting forward was very serious. They were saying to be a true Christian, you had to trust Jesus, yes, but then top that up with religious devotion, observing the Old Testament laws according to Moses, like circumcision, Old Testament Jewish festivals, you had to observe them, and and you had to become more Jewish to truly be saved. Now, why is that such a problem? You see, for Paul, their requiring religious works on top of the all-sufficient work of Christ was a massive problem. Why? Well, firstly... This false gospel denied the sufficiency of Jesus' death alone to save people from sin. Well, why is that such a big deal? Well, if you add anything to Jesus' saving work on the cross, you take away from Jesus' saving work on the cross. Jesus should be glorified as an all-sufficient Savior. If you say he gets you halfway 
and you get yourself the rest, you've taken away, you've stripped the glory of the sufficiency of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. You have just stripped him from his glory. That's why Paul is so concerned about this problem. He is passionate about the glory of Christ, and he doesn't want to see local churches rob glory from Christ by getting the gospel wrong. Second reason why this false gospel was so serious and such a problem, the false gospel would rob anyone of true assurance of salvation. That is true peace with God. If you have a Christ plus religious works gospel, will you not always be fearful that you have not done enough to be right with God in the end? The gospel of Jesus plus works, makes you a slave to fear because in the end, being right with God ultimately rests on you adding enough religious devotion to the work of Christ so that you'll be right with God. Now, how could that torment you? Well, we see an example of how this could torment someone in the 16th century reformer, Martin Luther. He was absolutely tormented by the idea of a righteous God. According to his understanding of the gospel before he was a true Christian, he believed that Jesus died on the cross for sins, yes, but then he had to add to it religious acts of devotion to complete his salvation. And poor Luther had such a troubled conscience, not knowing if he had ever done enough to be right with God. And he said that the idea of God's righteousness haunted him. He couldn't sleep He couldn't function hardly because he always wondered, have I done enough to placate this holy and righteous God? Here's what what Luther speaks of. We read of him wearing out his superiors with his excessive confessions. He would keep going to the confession box because he believed he had to confess his sins to a priest so that he could be absolved. And so he just kept coming and coming and coming to the point where you could imagine the guy in the confession box saying, Martin, would you ever just, just go away for a while? He wore out his supervisors and then he writes about his religious devotion later on, I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer with my religious devotion, I should have killed myself with my all-night vigils, my prayers, my readings, all of my works to placate a holy God. But then Luther testifies of the impact of what discovering the true gospel had on him. He speaks of reading books like Romans and Galatians. And he writes, Then I grasped that it is through grace and sheer mercy that God makes us right with him through faith in Christ. 
When I heard this, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. Luther was relieved from all his fears because he realized that Christ's death and hoping in that death and all that it accomplished, that alone is what saves you. And Luther realized, oh my goodness, I don't need to add to it all these works of devotion and all the fear that goes with that, that I may not be right with God. I am saved by Christ alone. And he rested. That is why Paul is concerned that the Galatians would not be turned away to a gospel that was Jesus plus works of religious devotion. He knew it would ruin them. And then the third reason he gives, or that we see, is it was, it was putting a stumbling block, this false gospel, in the way of people truly coming to Christ. Now, the only way that I can think to get at what the Judaizers was doing, that is, those who are trying to make Christians all become more Jewish. The only way that I can really get at the equivalent for us today is to think of a pretty on-the-edge illustration of what this would look like for us today in Northern Ireland. So the Judaizers were saying, unless you culturally become more like us, you can't really be in. And to illustrate how we might do that today, here's, here's one way. Imagine we had a couple of British Union Jack flags up somewhere in the church. Like some churches have. Imagine we hosted Orange Order parades here. People marching in in their orange sash, their British Union Jack flags. Imagine we all sang the British National Anthem here in church. Imagine if we were somehow communicating that to become a true Christian, you had to become a unionist. You had to identify as British or become a supporter of the DUP or the UUP. Imagine if that was our culture. A Roman Catholic gets saved, and then he walks in to our midst. This Roman Catholic identifies as Irish. He's passionate about the reunification of Ireland, and he's a supporter of the SDLP. Can this guy feel at home in this church? Or does he feel, I could never truly belong unless I become more culturally like them? That's close to the bone for us. I can feel it. (laughs) But that is the equivalent of what the Jewish Christians were doing. And Paul saw the dangers everywhere. Don't you wonder how many Catholics in Northern Ireland have struggled to be open to the gospel because they understand the gospel as something for British Protestant unionists? So we have a lot to learn. Paul was passionate about this because he saw the detraction from the glory of God's free grace given through his son would rob Christ of that glory. It would rob 
people of assurance this false gospel. It would make them slave to works, and it would put a stumbling block in front of Gentiles coming to Christ. And so he writes this letter to challenge the Galatians to win them back to the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And that is where Paul goes in the last part of the letter. What, this is the what question, what is the content of Paul's gospel that he's going to reinforce throughout the letter? I'll try and be as quick as I can as I draw this to a finish. The content of Paul's gospel is summarized in in verses 3 to 5. Paul's gospel is about the enjoyment of grace and peace with God, verse 3. It is realized through the death of Christ, verse 4, and it is all driving towards the glory of God. That's verse 5. Let's think about this just briefly. Paul's gospel is a gospel of grace, the grace of God that brings about peace with God. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, God's grace is his loving kindness towards us, a loving kindness that is undeserved. It finds its source not in something in us, but within God himself. This grace restores us to a place of peace. In the fall, all humanity lost peace in three directions. We lost peace with God, peace with fellow human beings, and peace within ourselves. God, by his grace, acts in the gospel to restore us to that place of peace with him, a place of peace with others, and to a place of peace within ourselves. This grace was exhibited by God accomplishing this peace through the death of Jesus Christ. That's verse 4. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Christ's death was not just an example of sacrificial love or of ultimate selflessness, It was most essentially a substitutionary sacrifice for sins. In chapter 3, verse 13, we're told that Jesus took the curse of sin and the judgment that we deserved for us. And Paul tells us here that through dying for our sins, Jesus delivers us from this present evil age. In the Bible, we're taught that there are two ages, this age and the age to come. This present age is referred to by Paul here as the present evil age because it is an age that is fallen. It is in bondage to decay. It will pass away. But the coming of Jesus Christ into the world was the breaking into this present evil age of the age to come. Now, the Jews from their understanding of the Old Testament, expected that the coming of the Messiah would bring the end of all ages. But we learn in Christ that he was bringing his kingdom in two stages. Through his incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection, he inaugurated the new creation age and he broke into the present evil age. But we know that Christ will come again and he will bring in the back end of the fullness of God's kingdom. So we have to understand when Paul speaks of being rescued from this present evil age, in a sense we're taken out of this present age, but in a sense we're still in it. We live here in the already 
not yet. We find ourselves in Belfast, but in Christ. We're seated here at Great Vic this morning, but in another sense, we're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. We already taste new creation life, but the fullness of that new creation life is yet to come. And so Paul teaches that this gospel is about grace and peace with God that can be enjoyed now. It is accomplished through the death of Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. And that's what he means by rescuing us from the present evil age. The fullness of that rescue is yet to come. And all of this, as Paul says at the end of verse 4, according to the will of the Father, to whom be glory forever. You see, when salvation is by grace alone, who gets the glory for it? God. And that's why this theme, unto the glory of God, is so important. So, to conclude, our Father wants us to live in the freedom and goodness of the gospel. This letter is going to bring us back Sunday and Sunday again to the glories, glories of the depths of that grace and freedom and joy there is for us in the gospel. But I just want to close by asking a few questions that we can ponder right at the start of this series. Would you say that you're enjoying living your life in the freedom and goodness of the gospel? How are you doing at that? Would you, ins- would you say that you're a Christian who is enjoying grace and peace? Or are you battling with low-level guilt because you think you need to add to the finished work of Christ's religious devotion? Now, we're going to caveat this on the way through. We're going to see how, yes, of course, it's important to be devoted to Christ. But so many Christians can just live with this sort of guilt We don't live in the grace and peace and freedom of the gospel. We just sort of live with this feeling pretty rubbish about ourselves. Well, this letter is going to blow that out of the water. Would you say you're living in the goodness of the gospel? Would you say that you're enjoying all the good things that are yours in Christ? Would you say that yours is a life orientated to the glory of God? Those are the kind of questions we're going to be exploring over the incoming weeks. And at the beginning of this series, I urge you to be praying once again, O Lord, as we examine these gospel foundations, transform me again by the glory of the grace and peace that there is in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, there's been quite a lot in this introduction And yet I pray that we would take away from this this morning once again the importance of what we're doing in this study, getting back again to the gospel, like a a little box full of treasure. Each Sunday we're going to be opening it up and lifting out those specific treasures and examining them and appreciating them and just taking them in. 
And as we unpack this little treasure store that is the book of Galatians, we pray that you would do a powerful gospel work in our midst, saving those that don't know the gospel, restoring those that have drifted away from the gospel, and touching us again so that we would be matured to become a people continually growing in our understanding and appreciation of this gospel. Father, thank you that we have good news to enjoy because Christ has died for our sins, has been risen from the dead to give us new life, and that that new life is a life we live by faith. We're not just saved by faith, we live by faith. And we pray that over this next while we would see these wonderful treasures and beauties and that they would have a mighty impact on us. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to stand together and sing of the grace and peace that we enjoy in the gospel.
now may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.